This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. In all the debate about how the world can best limit the impacts of climate change, there's one thing that always comes up, and that's nuclear power. Like, people have really strong feelings about it too. They're either all into it or they're dead against it. The question is, could it actually be a realistic option for Australia going forward? We're going to be getting into this because over the weekend at the big COP climate conference, a 17-year-old Australian who's over there brought this issue up, nuclear power, asked the French president about it. You'll hear what he had to say. We're also going to get the latest from Gaza. It's been an intense few days since the ceasefire ended last week. First, though. Hack. I would never have spoken to my doctor. I would have suffered a lot. On Triple J. Just a heads up, we're getting into a chat about mental health and hearing from a sexual assault survivor, so it might be a bit much for you. You can tune out for the next few minutes. I've got a question for you. Did you know that in Australia, it's legal for insurers to deny you coverage on mental health grounds? Like, we know how common things like depression and anxiety are for young people. And the advice is obviously always to seek help. But experts are worried young people might be covering up their mental health issues because of insurance reasons. I'm wondering if you've ever been through this. Like, if you had an issue when trying to get insurance because of your mental health history? Call in 1300 055536. You can message in as well, 0439757555. In a bit, we're going to unpack this with a psychologist. But first, here's Shalila Madora with Bell's story. I did go to my GP. In 2017, Belle Grati was sexually assaulted. She realised she couldn't cope by herself and decided to get professional help. So I sought out to get medication, to get a referral, to talk to a professional and to go on like a mental health plan. She was doing really well with managing her depression and anxiety until last year when her mum died and she went back to counselling and using antidepressants. She's doing much better now. Probably since last year, I haven't sought much help and I'm now off my medication. But last month, Belle was knocked back for life insurance coverage on mental health grounds. I like burst into tears at work because it just brought everything back. It was like I was being punished for trying to help myself. The insurer, Zurich, gave her very little info on why she was knocked back. But Belle thinks it was because of the help she got after those two massive traumas. A spokesperson for Zurich told the ABC that according to data from 2016, only 4% of applications for cover were denied on mental health grounds. It is important for an insurer to review an applicant's history to decide the most appropriate available cover. As such, when making a risk assessment, underwriters will consider both individual personal circumstances and the latest industry research on the relevant health conditions. When Bell found out that it's perfectly legal for insurers to discriminate on mental health grounds, she was really angry. I think people who don't seek out help are more likely to pose a risk. So instead of being proactive about mental health now, yes, they're using it against you to say, oh, well, there's an, there's an issue here. Ellen Tilbury is a lawyer at the Public Interest Advocacy Centre. She spent 10 years working on a report into so-called insurance discrimination. Insurers lump all of the 
different types of mental illness in together. And they don't differentiate kind of based on the severity or the circumstances of the individual's experience. As it stands, insurers can legally deny coverage altogether on mental health grounds, like they did with Bell, or deny coverage for claims resulting from certain conditions. They can also charge you higher premiums if you have a certain mental health condition. Insurers are covered by anti-discrimination laws, including the Disability Discrimination Act, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of disability. But they are subject to specific exceptions that enable them to discriminate where the discrimination is reasonable. But here's the thing. Insurers can only do this if they can prove that certain conditions lead to higher risk. And as Ellen says, insurers aren't exactly transparent. We're not sure that they actually have kind of robust data and evidence that they're basing their decisions on. And if they don't, we think that could be discrimination. CEO of mental health support service Beyond Blue, Georgie Harmon, says people have told her that they'd rather skip getting professional help than risk future insurance claims. Knowing that people may feel forced to turn down support for their mental health because they're scared of how that will look to an insurer is infuriating at best. She says insurers need to do better by people with mental health conditions. And if they don't, that the financial regulator ASIC should be given the powers to investigate. We feel the insurance industry is out of step with public sentiment and indeed consumer expectations. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora with that story. And just a reminder, if this has raised any issues for you, there's always someone to speak with at Lifeline on 13 11 14. Should say as well that we did ask to speak with the Council of Australian Life Insurers. They weren't available. We're getting a lot of messages on this one. On the text line, also on Instagram, Hannah says, this happened to me. I felt so disappointed. If I knew that they would have rejected life insurance, I would have uh, sought help. I wouldn't have sought help. An absolute joke. I fought it and ended up getting it, but it was so stressful and so wrong, in my opinion. A lot of people don't get help because of this, I'm sure. Lucy says, I've had this experience with income protection. I had a mental health exclusion put on it because I'd taken anxiety medication in the past. And Mitch says, this has to change. Insurance and legal system need to catch up. Uh, We're out here trying to get people to speak up only to have consequences for doing so. Let's get into this a bit more now. And with us to chat is Carly Dober. She's a psychologist and the director of the Australian Association of Psychologists. She's with us now. G'day, Carly. Thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. How common do you think this is? I mean, we're hearing from people on the text line. We heard in Shalila's story there. Are you hearing a lot uh, from people who are being denied insurance on mental health grounds? Sadly, yes. I think that this would be just the tip of the iceberg. I think people probably feel so defeated against big insurance companies that they don't bother to come public. And I think in this instance where Bell has gone public, now there's a bit of a groundswell. We're getting a lot of messages through. Mish says, you know, it's happened to me. I've run a business and proactively uh, would see a psych to manage the stress load rather than venting to friends and family. And that means I can't be covered. Someone else says I have bipolar and can't be insured as I'm high risk. We've got another one from Fred who says, well, if physical health history is considered acceptable grounds to gauge insurance risk, then why would mental health be any different? I'm not advocating for or against 
discuss this, but I just want to objectively uh, ask why this would be a shocking turn of events. How would you describe, um, how would you respond to that, Carly? I think it's it blows my mind because at any point in time, one in four of us will experience a disruption or a mental health uh, challenge, and that's just at this point in time. And about 50% of us over the course of our lifetimes will experience a mental illness. So effectively, that knocks out about 50% of the population that can be insured, which makes it very exclusionary, not evidence-based, and it also effectively punishes people for accessing basic health care. What do you think needs to be done? Because one of the big issues that we've heard about is that there doesn't seem to be a lot of accountability for insurers in this area. Like there's a voluntary code of conduct. There are no real avenues for bodies to investigate these kinds of issues. Is there anything that you think needs to be the priority right now? We would love to see some regulation and oversight and have some transparency about how they are making these decisions, what data and information they are accessing to make these decisions, because we know with the right support, anyone can get better. So the fact that people are getting denied these claims due to the fact that they are too high risk, I mean, what does that mean? It kind of just leaves more questions than answers. We know young Australians are also more likely to be talking about their mental ill health, seek out help. Do you think in a way that insurers are particularly letting young Australians down because of this? They absolutely are. The message that has sunk through really well with this generation is if you need support, go and get it. Talk about it. You aren't alone. And then you've got big businesses or insurance companies saying, well, if you do talk about it or you do get help, you will be penalised for it. So it's very different that there's a social appetite for change, but legislation and organisations like this have not stay current. Let's go to a caller now. We've got someone on the line. We've got Lara from Melbourne. G'day, Lara. What was your experience? Lara, can you hear me? Oh, Lara's not there at the moment. We'll go back to Carly. Carly, I'm wondering, is there an argument that people who have sought mental health support are actually less of a risk than those who haven't? I would actually say yes. We know that untreated mental illness can lead to a whole host of issues, not just for your mental health, but also to your physical health, to your emotional health, your relational health. So you are more high risk if you don't access that support. And unfortunately, the paradox is insurance companies are sending the message implicitly not to get support because then you won't be insured, which then will make people more high risk. So it's, yeah... It's a, it's a tough one and we're hearing from so many people right now. I'm going to go back to Lara from Melbourne. Lara, what was your experience here? Uh, my experience is like I've generally um, battled with um, major depressive disorder and a number of other um, it, um, issues for many years um, and I always had my superannuation insured. When I became disabled and could no longer work, I had a real struggle trying to get my claim approved generally because the insurer tried to write it off as major depressive disorder and not the actual conditions that I was claiming for. But in the end, I did win, but it took four years, four or five years of no income, no nothing to get that money. And what kind of impact did that have on you just like fighting that? Oh, major, uh, major, because, you know, it made me feel like I was lying. They just, you know 
gone from, you know, someone that's got, I'm quite open with my illnesses and what I've got wrong with me. Um, and for them to turn around and say, oh, no, she's got a borderline personality disorder and, you know, we really don't think that she should warrant the claim to fibromyalgia. So, mm. you know what I mean? It, it did work out, but they really, it, it was only that the, my psychiatrist approved it that I was, Grant's decline. Yeah, well, look, we're hearing. I just went into that for me. We're hearing from a lot of people who've had similar situations. Lara, thank you so much for calling in with your story. Uh, Carly Dover, it looks like it's something that we're going to be talking about for a little while. Just the response that we've got now on the text line is massive. Uh, Carly Dover from the Australian Association of Psychologists, thanks you very much for coming on Hack. Thank you. And more messages. Someone says, uh, someone, a doctor in Melbourne told me it's even an issue for doctors trying to get income protection. They are considered ineligible or have huge premiums if they have a history of mental health. Someone else, my partner went through months of issues and three insurers before getting covered. Because of this, I delayed getting my mental health looked at for around 10 years. Look, there are huge issues here. We'll keep on top of them. Time to move on. Hack. We are in Gaza dying slowly. I hope that the world moves quickly to end this war. On Triple J. Yeah, lots happened since the news on Friday that the ceasefire in Gaza was over. After a heavy bombing campaign over the weekend, Israeli ground forces are now moving into southern Gaza, an area where people were previously told it was safe to go. Israeli officials are saying they've killed a Hamas commander who was responsible for the October 7 attack. They're also saying they're making a maximum effort to avoid killing civilians. But the death toll keeps rising. Ellie Grounds has this update. For weeks, Israel has had a pretty consistently clear message for people in Gaza. For your immediate safety, we urge all residents of northern Gaza and Gaza City to temporarily relocate south. But now, that's changed dramatically. Israel's military says its ground operation has begun in southern Gaza and that it will be no less powerful than the offensive in the north. The IDF continues to extend its ground operation against Hamas centres in all of the Gaza Strip. In all of the Gaza Strip, where there is a Hamas centre, the IDF is operating. The forces are fighting face-to-face with terrorists and killing them. There's been reports of heavy shelling around Gaza's second-largest city, Han Yunus, and the nearby city of Rafah. We're now three days into the latest round of fighting, after a temporary truce between Israel and Hamas ended on Friday afternoon. More than 10 times as many Palestinians than Israelis have now died since October 7. Around 1,200 Israelis were killed then. The Gaza Health Ministry estimates that 15,000 Palestinians have been killed since. As the death toll grows, so too do the calls for Israel to change its tactics. Here's US Vice President Kamala Harris. As Israel defends itself, it matters how. The United States is unequivocal. International humanitarian law must be respected. Too many innocent Palestinians have been killed. But as far as Jonathan Konrakis from the Israeli Defence Forces is concerned, there isn't any other way to do it. And if anybody of the people who are criticising the IDF have any other way of both defending Israel, defeating Hamas and Uh, keeping civilians out of harm's way. We are very open to hearing suggestions, 
But people must remember that we are at war and we are defending Israelis. Because the IDF has spent weeks telling people in Gaza's north to evacuate, the south is now packed with refugees. The United Nations estimates 1.8 million Gazans have been displaced. Marus Algogo is one of them. All night there are strikes. We didn't know where to go, right or left. Some people say we should go east. Others say we should go west or north to Rafa. But Rafa is the same. There's fear. We don't know where to go. The IDF says it is again giving people in Gaza warning by dropping leaflets and sending text messages and has mapped out of 600 blocks which ones will be targeted and which ones won't. But Gaza journalist Sami Ziara says it's caused chaos and confusion. You ask the people to evacuate to Rafah and you said Rafah, it's a green place to stay on it. And at the same time you hit, you know, Rafah. So this is unbelievable. Israel remains adamant it isn't violating any international laws. Is Israel... Uh, conforming to international law in its approach in southern Gaza? I think definitely so, both in intention and in actions on the ground. I think that we are proving every day, including now when we are uh, expanding our operations, we take all possible efforts to distinguish between combatants and non-combatants and as far as we can, keep non-combatants out of the fighting. But the UN's Humanitarian Agency for Children, UNICEF, says it's clear that too many people not involved in fighting, including kids, have been injured or killed. UNICEF spokesperson James Elder, who's in Han Yunus, posted on X that the bombardment in southern Gaza is the worst attack he's seen during this two-month conflict. I feel like I'm running out of ways to describe the horrors hitting children here. I feel like I'm almost failing in my ability to convey the endless killing of children here. Chances of another ceasefire now look pretty slim after Israel pulled its negotiators out of talks with mediators in Qatar. Hamas says it will only give up more hostages if the war ends. Israel says the only way for the war to end is if Hamas surrenders. Many Palestinian lives would be spared if Hamas who allegedly govern the Gaza Strip and are supposed to care for Palestinian civilians, if they would come out of their hidings and say, we surrender. But the US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin had this warning for Israel. You see, in this kind of a fight, the centre of gravity is the civilian population. And if you drive them into the arms of the enemy, you replace a tactical victory with a strategic defeat. So I have repeatedly made clear to Israel's leaders that protecting Palestinian civilians in Gaza is both a moral responsibility and a strategic imperative. Hack on Triple J. Ellie Grounds with that story. And remember, for the latest on what is happening in Gaza, you can always find the updates on ABC News. You can check out the website. It's all there. Hack. You can't get to net zero 2050 without some nuclear. On Triple J. Now, there was a big announcement from world leaders over the weekend that you might have heard about. They've promised to triple the amount of renewables by the end of the decade. Now, this agreement was made at the big COP28 climate conference in Dubai that we were speaking about last week. It's going to be happening for the next few weeks. And everyone from the king to the US vice president was speaking there over the weekend. 
There was another pledge, though, that Australia did not back that was made at this climate conference, and that was to triple nuclear energy capacity by 2050. And it's fired off a bit of political debate back here, like it always does. We're going to get into that with someone who knows a bit about the nuclear debate in a minute. But first, here's Joe Lauder with an update from the Climate Talks. Climate challenge is not just another issue in your inbox. Protecting our climate is the world's greatest test of leadership. Humanity fate hangs in the balance. Make this COP count. Make this COP a game changer. That's the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres. He's the guy who started calling it global boiling, not global warming. And he urged the world leaders at this year's Global Climate Summit to get on with it. COP28, a.k.a. the Conference of the Parties, is the biggest climate meeting and it happens every year and about 70,000 people are in Dubai at the moment for it. King Charles is just one of the big wigs who's been speaking there. Some important progress has been made, but it worries me greatly that we remain so dreadfully far off track. The dangers are no longer distant risks. One of the biggest announcements so far has been contributions to what's called the Green Climate Fund, It's a fund that wealthy countries are meant to kick into to help the world's poor and vulnerable nations pay to address and adapt to climate change. Climate justice is long overdue. Developing countries are being devastated by disasters they did not cause. Extortionate borrowing costs are blocking their climate action plans. And support is far too little, far too late. The US Vice President Kamala Harris was at COP and announced a $3 billion contribution to the fund. We are demonstrating through action how the world can and must meet this crisis. This is a pivotal moment. And she talked up what the US is doing on climate change. President Biden and I have made the largest climate investment in the history of our country, and some have said the world. Roughly a trillion dollars over the next 10 years. There's always a lot of wheeling and dealing and agreements getting made at the COPs. Already over 100 have been made so far. For the first time, leaders have made an international pact around food and climate. Food systems are critical to climate talks because the way we produce what we eat is at risk because of climate change. But at the same time, it also causes emissions that are so far really hard to avoid. Over 100 countries are now going to specifically report on their emissions from their food production. As expected, heaps of countries, including Australia, have signed up to a commitment to triple the amount of renewables globally by 2030. It was one of the main goals of the president of this year's COP, Sultan Al-Jaber. We have received 117 signatories. So 117 countries have endorsed the pledge. He's a controversial figure because as well as being the COP president, he's also the boss of the country's oil company. And it's come out that he's also said that there's no science behind the demands to phase out fossil fuels, which is what all the world's leading climate scientists say needs to happen. There was another big announcement too about nuclear power. Over 100 countries signed a declaration to triple global nuclear capacity by 2050. And a 17-year-old Australian student who's a nuclear advocate asked the French President Emmanuel Macron what Australia should do about it. Emmanuel Macron, I'm from Australia and I was wondering what do you think is the role of nuclear energy in global plans to decarbonise? I hope you will manage to lift the ban. He said, I hope you will manage to lift the ban. It's kicked off a debate here in Australia with the opposition calling on the government to consider nuclear power. This certainly is not a comment against renewables. We need renewables too. 
In fact, we need an all of the above approach where every technology is considered. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. Joe Lauder there with that update from COP. I want to get into the nuclear kind of side of things a little more now. And Alison Reeve is with us and she's an expert in energy and climate with the Grattan Institute. It does independent policy research in Australia. G'day, Alison. Thanks for coming on Hack. No worries, Dave. Can you explain where Australia's at with nuclear energy at the moment? Because we just heard we've got a ban in place at the moment. Why was that introduced? Yeah, that's that's the short answer is that we don't have any. Um, that was introduced in 1998 and it was introduced because of concerns around safety. The debate at that time was sort of hinging around whether there's a safe level of exp- exposure to nuclear radiation. And in the absence of good information at that time about whether there was, um, parliamentarians said that the precautionary principle should apply. So, you know, if you don't know what's safe, then don't do the thing that you think might not be safe. It's still the case that we don't know whether there's a safe level of exposure and regulation worldwide about um, exposure to radiation and nuclear radiation tends to focus on a sort of a lifetime limit compared to background levels. So is where Australia's at at the moment in terms of our policy in this area at odds with a lot of other developed countries? Because we just heard from France who are calling for Australia to lift its ban. Where do we sit in terms of other developed countries? Well, I wouldn't say we're actually that unusual. There there are a number of countries that have chosen to phase out nuclear power. There are also countries who have voted to prohibit it. Worldwide, there's about 400 nuclear power stations across 32 countries, but three quarters of them are in just five countries, which is um, France, obviously, where it's why Emmanuel Macron is so keen, um, but also China, the US, Russia and Japan. There's a lot of big opinions on this, and I'm seeing them now on our text line, actually. Mace from Newcastle says, any country serious about net zero and reducing our reliance on China for renewables is realising nuclear is not only an option, but the only option we all have. I'm wondering, what does the evidence tell us? You've done a lot of research into this area. Uh, what, What can you tell us about the prospect of moving forward with this in the future? Look, in the short to medium term, the the Australian grid is is galloping towards being a very high renewable grid. The, the, the government is trying to get it on track to get to being 82% renewable within just seven years. Now, it takes on average 10 to 15 years to build a nuclear power station. So nuclear is not going to be a contributor to that goal. The, goal, the, the, the time is simply not there. The other thing is that if you have a grid that's got high levels of renewable energy, what you also need is backup generation that can switch on and off really quickly because, you know, if you see like the sun going behind a cloud and then coming coming out again, that means the renewables levels drop and then come up again quite quickly. Nuclear power is not good at switching on and off like that. Um, so it's not actually... It, the, the niche that it will find within a high renewables grid is probably going to be very, very small, like maybe the last 2%, um, you know, it, if it's lucky. Because the coalition's kind of suggesting different things like building small modular nuclear reactors next to uh, retired coal power stations. Would that work? Well, small modular reactors are an experimental technology. It's they're, they're at a very early stage of development, right? Worldwide, only two of them have actually been deployed. Um, and those took a long time to build, sort of between five and nine years longer than was originally planned. And their performance has not been really great. Um, 
The second thing about small modular reactors is that they're not cheap. They're they're projected to be cheaper than conventional nuclear, but it's kind of a, the same as a um, you know a, a Ferrari is cheaper than a Lamborghini, but they're still both really expensive cars. Um, so you know it it may be the case you know that that small modular reactors end up playing a role but at the time at the moment they just feel like such an uncertain bet that i think centering your whole energy approach around them is kind of like you know betting on jetpacks for your transport policy it's it's really sort of hanging everything on something that has a really long way to go okay so i'm i'm getting that you're kind of thinking that nuclear energy is not probably going to play a huge role uh, going forward in australia at this point I don't think so. I mean, just coming back to the the question you were asking about whether we put them next to the coal-fired power stations, I think the question that we're not asking is about the people who live there and whether they want to live next door to them. One of the things that we're finding out through the transition to renewables is that it's really, really important to consult the people who are hosting these generators, whether that's a nuclear generator or whether that's a wind turbine or whether it's a transmission line. And until we actually know that the people who live near the coal-fired generators are going to be happy to have those replaced by nuclear generators, I wouldn't be making any assumptions about that being an easy solution. Well, look, it's definitely a big debate that I'm sure we'll continue to have, especially leading up to the next election. Politicians want to talk about this. We appreciate your take. Alison Reeve from the Grattan Institute, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thanks, Dave. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.